Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 12th, 2015, and this is episode 1497 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Monday. Monday is when I take your feedback. Uh, this is where you send me emails, put TSPC, TSPC, Tango Sierra Papa Charlie, in the uh, subject line, and when you send me an email, and then whatever other subject you want, that'll help me find it and dig it out of the spam filter, where, oh, I'd say a good 30% of what you guys send me for some reason ends up in the Outlook spam filter, and I can dig it out a lot better if you follow that protocol, and you'll be more likely to get on the air and be featured on a show like today. Before we get to your feedback, and again, you can send me feedback, whether it's articles, videos, concepts, thoughts, questions, you name it, all of it can come to me. Just put that TSPC in the subject line. Uh, before I get to those this week, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. JM Bullion is my choice for gold and silver. I think they should be your choice for gold and silver as well. Why? Well, how about personal service? How about the fact that this company's small enough that I personally can talk to the president of the company, Michael, to solve any kind of problems that may pop up? And from sometimes to time, Anything that involves human beings, especially things like post offices and shippers and what have you, there might be a problem. And uh, Michael's always been readily accessible to me to help solve those problems. So I think that is a huge reason in of itself. Because when I was looking to uh, bring on a sponsor for this, I talked to the big silver and gold houses, specifically Monex and Atmex. And uh, when I talked to them, I couldn't get past, you know, like a third level clown in marketing. So that wasn't good enough. And then I looked at the pricing, and JM is either right at the same price or better on almost all the items that are for sale on JM compared to the big silver and gold houses. So you got better pricing, better service, free shipping, and uh, personal service. So that's why I use JM Bullion to purchase my gold and silver. As far as why I invest in gold and silver, well, the plan for the Federal Reserve and your dollar is for it to be worth less next year than the year before. No one will deny that. If you ask the chairman of the Federal Reserve himself, they'll tell you, yeah, that's our plan. That's the that's exactly what we're supposed to do. So since that's the plan, I, I hedge and I put insurance into my investments with 5 to 10% of my net worth invested into silver and gold. Next up today, ready-made resources. The company that says what it does and does what it says. You'll find everything you need at ready-made resources. Point, click, and buy on their website. Great pricing, great service. And when I say everything, I mean everything, guns to gardens and everything in between, practical to the tactical, 12-volt appliances for your solar and wind projects, all the stuff you need to put in solar and wind, uh, everything. I mean, if you can think of it in the prepper space, ReadyMade has it. Check them out today, readymaderesources.com. Again, the company that does what it says and says what it does. Next up, I want to remind you guys about the Members Support Brigade. If you join the Members Brigade, you'll get content available nowhere else from me, myself, and I, Jack Spirico. And uh, you'll also get discounts to about 60 different vendors, including JM Bullion and Ready Made Resources, most of our other sponsors, and a ton of companies that we just simply don't have room to take on as sponsors. That's what I've did, done. I put this together for you guys. Imagine if the AAA discounts were real discounts. They were actually only available from AAA, and they were stuff you actually bought. That's what the member support brigade is, is like. So I won't come pick you up on the side of the road if your car breaks down, but I will actually give you discounts. And if you think the show's worth two dimes an episode, then it's worth investing in the member's brigade and becoming part of the member's brigade team here at TSP. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, 
All of you guys qualify for a discount, whether you're active duty or prior service, does not matter. Email me before you join. Put service discount in the subject line. And following the new rules, service discount TSPC would be an even better way to make sure I don't miss it. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll send you a discount code back. Thank you for your service and give you a great price on an already great product. Uh, next up, it is the year 1497. What's going on in 1497? How about this? We have Amerigo's first voyage to the New World. And we have Mardi Gras and the Bonfire of the Vanities. I'm going to read Amerigo's first voyage to the New World. Amerigo Vespucci is someone many of us know. You have at least a little footnote in uh, in history class that the Americas are named for Amerigo. But you often, I mean, I remember hearing this in school that basically like Amerigo was this guy that Columbus knew and eventually he named it after him. No, no. No! The real story by Alex Shrugged, who does all these great contributions for us at TSP Wiki. America's first voyage to the New World. Americo Vespucci is a man from Florence who moved to Spain and took part in the financing and refitting of Columbus's ships. This experience has inspired him to make a journey of his own. Christopher Columbus has been exploring all through the Caribbean, still believing, or feverishly hoping, that he is in the East Indies. Columbus has been a poor and often absent administrator, leaving the Spanish colonies to fall into lawlessness and chaos. King Ferdinand breaks his exclusivity agreement with Columbus and sends Amerigo with three ships to find out what Columbus has really found. On this first voyage, Amerigo will enter the Gulf of Mexico and explore the coast of what will be the United States of America. After his third voyage in 1502, his published reports will mesmerize the public And Columbus will be sidelined, I guess until we made a federal holiday about him. Anyway, my take by Alex Shrugged, the reports of the voyages of Amerigo are difficult for historians to credit fully. It is clear that he was a superstar after he returned from his third voyage, and he may have gone back a fourth time. His travel logs got wide distribution and spurred the imagination of the public. This is probably why the first cartographers named the new continents America after Amerigo, and not Columbia after Columbus. Later, they regretted the initial naming and wanted to use Vespucci for the continental names, but the first name stuck, so they went with it. Really, I'm not kidding. Later examination of the reports show that some of them were fabrications made by others. Sorting out what is true and what is not during this time period is difficult, but Amerigo's reports drove the public perception, and they perceived that whatever Columbus found, it sure wasn't China, which... Actually, it was the truth. My take by Jack Spierko, so why Columbus? Why is it Columbus Day? It's something called, and it's very true in today's world, first mover advantage. Those who do things first and get known for doing them first typically are the ones that get the long-term credit and accolades. Let's look at something far more recent in history and, and see what I'm talking about. Who was the first man to walk on the moon? Most of you know Neil Armstrong. Who was the second? Who was the second man to walk on the moon? Some of you know it is Buzz Aldrin. But I guarantee you if you polled a couple thousand people out of the public, far more people know who Neil Armstrong is than Buzz Aldrin. And the name Neil Armstrong is far more synonymous with American heroism than Buzz Aldrin. Why? Neil went first. That is the only reason why. Neither of them were more instrumental to the mission. 
Neither of them took less of a risk of life and death in what they did. Here's another question for you. Well, those two guys went to the moon. They had to have this thing orbiting the moon so that when they left, they could redock with it and go back to Earth. Someone had to stay in that little thing. Who was that? I mean, without him, Aldrin and Armstrong would have had nothing to come back to. They didn't have it to where it could just sit up there on its own and be left alone. It had to be piloted. It had to be maintained. They needed a ride home. Who was the guy that did that? That just drew the short straw. It didn't get to go down to the moon. His name is Michael Collins. How many of you knew that, honestly, without going to Google to get the information? But who were the first men to go to the moon? Not to land on the moon, but to go there, to actually leave Earth's orbit, reach the moon, go around it, and come back safely to Earth. See if you know any of these names. Frank F. Borman, James A. Lovell, and Williams A. Anders, who did so above Apollo 8. These were the first men to go to the moon and come back. What does this teach us? Whatever sticks in the mind of the populace is being the most amazing, and whoever is synonymous with first will then stick in the mind. And then with proper marketing, we can be led to believe things that aren't necessarily true. I mean... I'm not saying what Aldrin and Armstrong and Collins did wasn't heroic. It took some some stones to get in a spacecraft built way back then and go to the moon and land on it and come back. And there was certainly an added layer of risk. But the truth is that somebody went first. Borman, Lovell, and Anders paved the way. And their names are lost to history because the marketing around the concept is simply not as strong. That's my take by Jack Spirico, and that's why you live in America, and yet the person synonymous with discovering the landmass that you call America is named Columbus. With that, let us uh, take a look now. It's time to go into our survival scenario, our Monday survival scenario. All right, guys, and remember, I now put the Monday survival scenarios on YouTube so you can share them with folks. Uh, this is the second one, so we'll be able to actually do the whole scenario segment today because I put the one out last week. So all I, all, what I do every week is I give you the previous week's scenario on the Survival Podcast and I tell you what my response to it would be, uh, admitting that I get a certain advantage and I get to see all of your answers first and critique them. And it's always easier to do that than to be the person that goes first. Uh, kind of tying into our last segment. And then I give you a new scenario for this week and solicit your responses. And remember, if you're watching on YouTube, you can get the entire show that these are part of by going to the survivalpodcast.com. And today's episode is 1497. Again, I think by putting these on YouTube, I make this a little bit easier for some of you guys to share with people that might not want to listen to an hour to an hour and a half or longer podcast on a daily basis and at least get the mind open to what can go wrong. Or in today's instance, the things that need to be addressed that are critical to our future and our children's futures in sane and rational ways. Let's start out with last week's prepper scenario. And I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of you guys, well, you didn't answer the question. You weren't wrong. You just didn't answer the actual question 
Remember, I'm trying to get you to think deeply about these things. So last week was, you're in a large shopping mall, some sort of panic breaks out, and you have no idea why. All you know is that people are freaked out and screaming stuff like, we have to get out of here. The situation is getting worse by the second. Being trampled to death is a real threat. The thing is, you don't know if the internal threat, if the internal threat of staying put is real or imagined. You have no clue as to the danger. To make matters worse, you are pretty far from any exit, and a child is in your care. The child is about 80 pounds, small enough to be at greater risk of injury, but large enough to make carrying him or her difficult. What steps should you take in advance when entering any large public building to be best prepared to react to this scenario? A lot of you said things like, I duck into a store and go out the service exit. It's not a bad answer. It's also not the question. The question was about situational awareness. What do you do when you enter an area like this? a large public building, or any place with a large number of people where something could go wrong, be it be a, be it a fire, some lunatic with a gun shooting at people, who knows what, a terrorist attack? Um, it, there's a million things that can happen that cause a crowd to go berserk, and then the crowd becomes the greater danger. You're just as dead if you're trampled to death by a bunch of fat people as you are if somebody shoots you in the head with an AK-47 or you burn to death in a fire. Dead doesn't come in degrees. There's Dead's an absolute condition. Dead or not dead. As a survivor, then, you know, you're just as bad off if you're in a wheelchair because your back was broken by a fat guy stepping on it. Uh, as if you had been clipped with a, a round from an AK-47 once again. So whether you're dead or a survivor with severe life-altering injuries, it doesn't really matter how it happened. It matters that it happened. So we need to be prepared to avoid this with situational awareness. So some of the things that you guys said and some of the things I would add to it include things like when you go into a building, immediately identify multiple exits. Malls in particular have maps. Take a look at the map. Identify the exits, the different stores, the different areas. It would also be advantageous. I said you were with a child. I didn't say that was the only people with you. What about people that might have been with you that you split up? You know, mom wants to go shoe and purse shopping. I don't want to go. I want to go somewhere else. So if something goes wrong, where is your rallying point? Now, it normally would be your vehicle, but it makes sense to have a second place if that's not accessible so that you can find each other. Because when everybody's panicking and pounding that cell tower that's right there, that one tower, It's not made to handle that many people freaking out and calling, texting, and Instagram and people dying at the same time. So you may not be able to contact each other with that, so you need a place to physically reunite. Personally, whenever I go in any building, I don't care if it's a shopping mall or it's a small mom-and-pop restaurant, I never sit with my back to the main entrance when I sit down at a place. I always want to be at a place where it's on my strong side, which for me is my right side, or directly in front of me. I always pay attention to what's going on. I always have clued my wife in to pay attention to what's going on in the field of view that I do not have. That way I'm prepared to defend myself, defend others, or get the hell out of the way. When you're walking around a mall, it's not the exact same thing, but it's the same type of maintaining an orientation, paying attention to what's going on around you, occasionally looking over your left, your right shoulder, and behind you, stopping for a second, assessing the situation. This is basic situational awareness that you should be doing every day anyway, but in a shopping mall should have a higher level of importance. The other thing is, well, I'll just go through a store and go out the back. What if you're on the third floor of a three-story mall? 
Sometimes there are escape routes that go down in between the floors and the back of stores. Sometimes there's not. Or sometimes it's a long corridor and they go to a common stairwell. That's usually how they're laid out. Which way do you go? Well, they should be labeled. Are they? Do you know to even pay attention for those labels? See, a lot of malls aren't one-story you know, applications, are they? In fact, I've seen malls that have basically a basement level. It's a sub-level. you got to get back up. Will those exits be safe? Maybe. They're definitely an advantage. And I, th I think what happened is one or two persons posted that, and then everybody just kind of dogpiling. That's what I do. That's what I would do. But you have to think a little bit longer than just, you know, that's what you would do. Is it what you would do? Is it the right thing to do? I, it's a great strategy. But without the initial situational awareness, where are you? Where are the exits? Where are the stores? Where is the rendezvous point? And paying attention to the mood of an area. Seldom do things actually go from okay, okie-dokie to full-on chaos that fast. There's usually a cascade as people start to become aware that something's going on, unless you're right at the imminent ground level zero threat. Now, I said in this scenario, you didn't know what was going on. That means you were somewhere as this cascade came forward. If that situational awareness is up and tuned, then you probably would have keyed in on something being wrong. And there's no big deal about getting out of a place, finding out nothing's going on, and going back in. Losing your place in line isn't worth losing your life. These are things to think about. Now... Let us move on to today's scenario, which is a little bit different. I try to give you guys scenarios that are based on things that could really happen, and a lot of times those are scenarios that actually put you in a position like this last one. This one's a little bit different. This one is more of this is an ongoing issue that you're going to have to deal with, and if you're a parent or an aunt or an uncle, any type of mentor, anybody that cares about a younger person, something you have to confront on a daily basis that's not really considered an imminent threat, but I do believe it's a threat to our long-term safety, security, and liberty in this nation. And here's today's scenario. We live in a world where those in power are constantly engaged in disinformation and distraction campaigns. At the same time, there is a tremendous amount of good information and technological information available. How can we empower young people to be critical thinkers? So they can both learn from the new information that is out there and filter out the majority of useless, distracting, misleading, and downright deceitful information. If you don't think there's downright deceitful information in our media, you need to perform this activity for yourself. But once you've done you've gotten clear that not everything you're told is true or that many times you're told the truth, but that truth is built up to be more than it is, you start to realize how much of what's out there is designed as part of your social programming by media and by the oligarchy that's actually running this country because it sure as hell ain't in your congressman. If you believe the congressmen and the senators and the president are running this country, I have a website you should visit. It's called definingthemachine.com. You should learn about what's called the party dues system and how, just how, to what level your congress is bought and paid for. That might be a good step for you in freeing yourself from this as well. But the other side of this is I see people that, you know, are kind of just ridiculous with everything that everybody says everywhere is a lie and they're all out to get us and that you can't be that way. There's a tremendous amount of innovation and scientific knowledge being developed. There is a, a path that humanity is taking, and some of it is very, very negative, but some of it is very, very positive. So how do you teach your children and other young people 
and frankly yourself, to be a discerning and critical thinking individual to filter out the positive, the true, and the useful from the useless, the distracting, and the deceitful. That's today's prepper scenario. All right, first up today is uh, feedback that comes from a lot of people. A lot of times I'll be reading an individual email like Dan says or, or you know, Sandra says or whatever. But uh, in this case, this was a lot of you guys contacting me about this. And I even had some customers that came and bought some eggs from us this week uh, while we were engaged in this activity. And they asked about it as well. So I figure it's something that people really want to know about. So last week I talked about ducks and a duck versus a, 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 a rabbit for meat. And I talked about a lot of different things you can do with a duck, like confit and roasted breast and stuff like that. But I also said you take all those bones and you make bone stock or bone broth, however you want to call it. And we'll talk about stock and broth and the difference here in just a minute. Um, and then the other thing that I said was, uh, or that, that kind of precipitated this, is, is Ben Falk was on, and we were talking about soundscaping, but toward the end we started talking about his, his you know, environment up there in, in uh, Vermont, where it's really cold this time of year, and what's life like on a permaculture farm. And he said, one of the things he said is, there's always a pot of bone stock each week working on the, on the, on the wood stove. So there's always a pot of stock going, and we you know, consume a lot of that. And this got me a bunch of questions that were basically, what is bone stock or bone broth? How do you make it? And why should we be including it in our diets? It is something very well known in the paleo world, but it's not something I've talked about a lot. Um, so let's talk about, let's start out with the health benefits. What I'm reading to you is from Dr. Mercola. Whenever I talk about health benefits, I try to cite somebody else. So it's not my information. The FDA can't come after me and say I've turned... Uh, soup into a drug, which is what they try to say when you say anything does anything good for you. They say if you make any health claims about something, that makes it a drug. So if I tell you vitamin C were to cure scurvy, even though we know that's the truth, I've now made vitamin C a drug. Okay? And if I said orange juice has vitamin C and therefore orange juice cures scurvy, which is impossible to scientifically refute, I've still turned it into a drug. So that's why I always cite medical professionals, plus they're medical professionals and they know more than me. I'm also a huge fan of Dr. Mercola. There's a huge article on this on his site. You can read the whole thing. I'm reading from a table that talks about the healing benefits of bone broth. Uh, helps heal and seal your gut and promotes healthy digestion. The gelatin found in bone broth is a hydrophilic colloid. It attracts and holds liquids, including digestive juices, thereby supporting proper digestion. Reduces joint pain and inflammation courtesy of chondroitin sulfates, glucosamine, and other compounds extracted from the boiled-down cartilage. Now, you might have heard glucosamine and chondroitin in there. That's a really expensive dietary supplement. It's, it's in bone broth in a very bioavailable way. Promotes strong, healthy bones, as mentioned above. Both bone, uh, both bone broth contains high amounts of calcium and magnesium and other nutrients that play an important role in healthy bone formation. Inhibits infection caused by cold and flu viruses, etc., a study published over a decade ago found out the chicken soup indeed has medicinal qualities significantly mitigating infection. In other words, Grandma was right. Fights inflammation. Amino acids such as glycine, proline, and arginine all have anti-inflammatory effects. Arginine, for example, has been found to be particularly beneficial for the treatment of sepsis or whole body inflammation. Glycine also has calming effects which may help you sleep better. Promotes healthy hair and nail growth thanks to the gelatin and the broth. And if you want to keep examining this for yourself, you can find a whole litany of health improvements that are attributed to bone broth. 
some very level-headed like Dr. Mercola, and some that are probably a little bit excessive. But in, in essence, I just wanted to lead off with, well, the reason you should be using bone broth in your daily living is it's extremely healthy. It's also cheap. It can be free or it can be a few bucks, uh, plus the energy required to create it because there is a certain amount of heat that has to be applied for a relatively long period of time, so you are paying for that energy depending on how you make it. I guess you could make it in a solar oven if you really wanted to, but it might be kind of tough to do. I guess you'd have to put it out a couple days in a row uh, to get the job done, so to speak. But Or if you're like Ben Falk and you have a wood stove going anyway and it's just sitting there, it's using the residual energy. So I guess you have to work it out for yourself how much it really costs you. But bones are usually cheap or free. Now, they used to be free. They used to be able to go to any butcher and say, hey, you got any marrow bones back there or whatever? And they were either free or they'd give you a big pile of them for like two bucks because otherwise they're going to throw them out. They might sell them to somebody that feeds them to their dog. Since bone broth has kind of made a comeback, and I say a comeback because Uh, all the way back thousands of years ago, cavemen made bone broth and ate it. And a hundred years ago, your grandparents guarantee you made bone broth. Everybody always did this. So it kind of went out of vogue when people got you know readily available abundant sources of meat and the bone was something you threw away or gave the dog. So now it's a little harder to get. I just picked up some bones recently to make some bone broth this week, and we paid, I think, a dollar a pound for them. So it wasn't expensive, but these were big beef knuckle bones. Now... Uh, so you get bones, and the better the quality of the animal, the better the quality of the product. So if you're buying organic chicken, one way that you can have lots of bones is simply don't buy chicken parts. Buy whole chickens. Break the chicken down into you know legs, thighs, etc. on your own, and save the bones. <laughs> and then make stock from the bones. You can make really great chicken soup that way, too. There's a lot of meat on a chicken in its back and what have you. Um, you can save bones from anything. If you go out and buy ribs, you can save the, the bones from the ribs and make bone stock out of the rib bones. Beef rib bones are a great place to make stock from, especially if you have a butcher that will cut them in half for you or if they've already been cut to expose the marrow. The marrow is a really important part of this whole process. Uh, if you were a caveman, you just beat it with a rock till it cracked in half and throw it in whatever you could put water in and boil, right? So, But getting at that marrow is a really useful thing when you're making bone stock. Oxtail bones, which is basically cow tail bone, uh, is really a great uh, source of, of bone. There's some meat on there, too, and I'll talk about if you have a lot of meat, what you can do to make use of the meat without totally obliterating it here in a second. But any bone you can get your hands on can be used to make bone stock of different flavors and types and consistencies. You can even make bone stock from fish bones if you really wanted to. So we get our bones, and it's a great idea if you're not using bones from something that's already been roasted or cooked or baked, if they're just raw bones, to cook them in the oven first. 30 minutes at about 400 degrees, turn to a nice brown. Uh, cooking them also if they're up on some kind of a grate that lets the fat drip off of them during that period so there's less fat to skim off, and I'll talk about that in a second, uh, is, is not a bad idea either. Once that's done, you put them into a pot of water, just enough to cover them a little bit more than just barely covered, and you put them on, you turn the, the heat on, you bring them up to a boil, and as soon as it starts to boil, start kicking that heat back down and find a spot with your heat where it just simmers. And then simmer. If you're doing chicken bone stock or any kind of small poultry bones, you can do it for about 12 hours of simmering. To get the most out of things like beef bones and lamb bones and larger bones, 48 hours of simmering. I know if you don't want your stuff running all night long, what you can do is you run it all day long, cut your stove off before you go to bed, wake up in the morning, turn it back on. 
That's what we do, because I don't like my gas stove running at night, even though I know it's going to be okay and it's not going to boil off or whatever. I just don't like that on at night when I'm out there monitoring it. So that's it. When you get that done, you strain it, and you have a pure bone stock. I like more flavor in my stock. So what I do is if I'm doing chicken or whatever, I might do it right from the beginning. If I'm doing beef, you're really going to hammer this thing for you know 30 to 48 hours, right? So it's the last day that I'm doing it, the last part, last, say, 8 to 10 hours of simmering. I'll put some big chunks of carrot and celery and onion in there. Great big, I'll cut like an onion in half, just throw it in there. Three or four big carrots cut in half, throw it in there. Three or four stalks of celery cut in half, thrown in there. It makes it easier to strain them out if you don't cut it up like soup, because we're, we're basically making a, a stock here. I also like to use salt. I use salt to taste, and I go a little less salt than you want in your finished product. I don't use much salt at all, honestly, when I make my bone stock. And the other thing is you need something to acidify the, the cooking fluid to make it better able to extract the goodness from the bones. Most people use apple cider vinegar. Uh, I usually don't put that in right away. I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But I do use apple cider vinegar. You can also use wine. Uh, white wine would be best. All you're looking for is something to take that water to a lot lower acidity level because the acidity with that long cooking will get more extraction from the bones. And that's it. You strain it off, and it'll get like a jello when it cools. I mean, some, some depending on how much you've extracted, how much you've gotten out of the bones, it might be like like thick jello. It might be like thin jello. And whenever you want to use it, you just heat it up, and you can use it in your cooking, or you just make a cup of it and, and drink it. And drinking a cup of that a day is probably better advice to keep a doctor away than eating an apple a day. A couple different ways you can store it. You can pressure can it. This is a low-acid food, right? This is not tomatoes. You cannot water bath can it, but you can pressure can it. Or you can freeze it. If you want to freeze it in ball jars, leave about an inch and a half in the ball jar. Put it in the freezer with no lid on it. Let it expand. Put the lid on it, and then you can keep it in the freezer in a ball jar if you want to. Or you can freeze it in any other freezable container, Ziploc bags, what have you. One of the great ways to use it is to freeze it as ice cubes. So you can take out how much ever you want at a time. And we just ordered some silicon muffin trays, basically, that make big bricks of it about the size of a bar of soap, which would be about a cup per serving, which is a lot more practical than a little bitty ice cube. So those are that's how you would store it, either frozen uh, or, or canned. It will store in the refrigerator for a good week, week and a half, two weeks without much problem, but then it will start to, to go off on you. Now, to skim or not to skim the fat, and to or not to use a crock pot. The fattier the meat and the more fat, the less I am a fan of a crock pot because it's harder to skim fat off in a crock pot than a stove top pot. Okay? I don't have anything against fat. Fat is good. It just is not good in stock as far as I'm concerned. By skimming it, you get a very clear high-quality, good-tasting stock, and when you drink it, it doesn't have fat sticking to your face and your lips and your teeth. Right? Um, there's two schools of thoughts. One is you skim it as you go, and you're never going to get it all, but you skim as much of it as you can. That leaves not that much to take off at the end. Or just don't worry about it. When your stock's done, put it in the refrigerator, let the, the fat harden, and peel it off the top. That works too. Um, so it's up to you and whatever you're cooking and how much fat there is. But if you bake your bones first... You're going to have less fat because a lot of that fat's going to drip off. And again, it ain't the fat's bad. It just isn't good in stock as far as I'm concerned anyway. I don't like fat stuck to my lips. It's gelatinous enough, and it's 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 a very full mouthful. And you'll find when you make stock, like you 
go to clean a pot or a jar out, it's hard to get out. It's not like, if, you, if it's easy to clean, like you just rinse it with water, dump it, and it's not on there anymore, you've made broth, not, not stock, right? You haven't concentrated the, the minerals and the gelatins enough. So it does get kind of sticky. The big thing is definitely strain it when you, when, you, when you take it out of the pot. So pour it through a strainer, a colander, what have you. A lot of people put a piece of cheesecloth down to get even a, a cleaner, more strained out product. It's not necessary, but it does make a good appearing product. And then again, you use it in your cooking, you drink it, what have you. Very good health benefits. Very, very paleo. Very similar to what your ancestors ate. And makes use of things that would normally be thrown away. And if you want the dog to have the bone, by the time you're done making a stock, you can give them the bone. There's no shattering shards. Bones get malleable. Uh, it takes a long time to get a cow bone malleable, but they do get pretty soft and crumbly for a dog anyway. You get chicken bones and you cook them for 12 hours this way, You pick it up with your hand, you just crush them. They'll crush into bone meal uh, because you've taken so much out of them. So there you go. That's the, the, the whatnot on bone stock. Uh, next, I have gotten a ton of emails about free college from Obama. And uh, what are my thoughts on that? So we'll go into that one next. So, yeah, next up, uh, Barack Obama has uh, proposed free college for all. And I'm videoing this segment of today's episode for you guys as well because – Well, I think we might just get a little bit of a jack rant, so we'll put it in the YouTube channel under jack rants. Uh, though I won't rant too much, but I do want to point some things out. Um, first of all, this is a really stupid idea. This, and, and I'll explain why here in just a second, but it's a dumb idea. Basically, what Barack Obama is proposing, and if you look at his own words, it comes out to this, 13th and 14th grade. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Is make He wants to make community college, two years of community college for those who will work for it, which means get a C-plus and go to school halftime. That's what that's what work for it means, in case you didn't know, um, to be able to go to community college for free. And what that will do, if it's put in place, let's leave out how we pay for it right now. Just if we did that, it will basically equate two years of college to high school. In other words, it will devalue the already declining value of a degree. It's as simple as that. Number two, we know there's going to be a lot more expense to this thing than uh, than most people would lead you to believe. That's another reason it's a bad idea. On the Washington Post today, there's a there's an article, and it says the big catch in Obama's plan for free community college. Let me read a little bit of the article to you. President Obama on Thursday proposed free tuition for students to attend two-year community college. The White House would estimate that 9 million people a year could benefit from the program, says it wants community college to be as free and universal as high school. But there's a major catch aside from just the fact that the Republican-led Congress are made up of a bunch of big boonies and they won't sign off on it. It doesn't really say that, but that's, that's his little spiteful dig in there at Republicans. Free tuition, even for two years, is not nearly enough to cover the cost of attending college. Yeah, he's not, we're not spending enough money. That's what this whiner wants to complain about. Here we go. Tuition and fees counted for just 21% of the budget for students who attend two-year public college to pay for off-campus housing, according to a recent study from College Board. While the average tuition and fees at community college is $3,347 for the 2014-2015 academic year, housing costs another $7,705, books average $1,328, and transportation added up to $1,735. So whine ass here, 
wants the government to not just pay for you to go to school. No. He wants them to pay for you to live while you go to school. He wants them to pay for your books. And he wants them to pay for your freaking transportation. And I'm just going to skip to the end of this before I have a freaking heart attack. Uh, yet at a time when students are graduating college with an average of $28,000 in debt, it's hard to argue against any plan that can reduce the need for student loans. It's something, but it's still not the panacea that students have been waiting for. This person, Danielle Douglas Gabriel, is a moron! Because she doesn't get that we already can't afford this. But, I mean, you read this article for yourself and you tell me if you doesn't seem to feel like, you know, the government should just pay for you to live. If you can't stay at home with your parents, the government should just give you some money for housing, pay for your books, make it cost you nothing to go to college. There's so many things in this one that are an example. You know how the today's prepper scenario was discerning information, critical thinking, figuring things out? Okay, let's talk about a number that keeps getting batted around. $3,347. What is that number? The average tuition for a student to attend community college full-time. Then why in some states are we spending eighteen to twenty thousand dollars for students for kids to go to second freaking grade? See, no one's supposed to ask that question. Think about that. Let's talk about another little problem with this. Under the Ask Clown and Chiefs uh, proposal, this is how it would work. The federal government will fit the bill for seventy-five percent. Of the cost. That's, that's awful nice of them considering they take the money from the states in the first place. So in other words, they'll have to figure out how to raise more money through taxes and things like that at the federal level, but don't worry about it, we'll take care of it. Then the states are supposed to pony up 25% of the cost. Times millions of students every year in that state. And, you know, nine million people could benefit. Well, if you make college free, do you think more people are going to go or less people are going to go? So that number goes up. Like every government program, the, the level of cost always goes higher. But basically what this proposal is, is, hey, Florida, we'll give you 75% of the cost of all your students to go to community college, but you're going to pay 25% of the bill whether you want to or not. If you've ever heard the term unfunded mandate before, that's an unfunded mandate. When the federal government requires that a state do something, and then forces the state to do it, but doesn't fund the activity, requires the state to spend its money. So this is forcing Florida to spend this money, forcing Georgia, forcing California, forcing Pennsylvania, forcing Texas to spend this money on a program with a dictate from the federal government ignoring states' rights to run their own damn states. So that's a problem as well. What's the bigger problem here, though? Right now, we have not been asking the right question. Not, should we do something to make it cost less to go to college, but what is actually the return of investment on a college education today, specifically when not specialized enough or being uh, partaken of by a student who's actually capable of making use of it on the other side? Uh, should we have children learning more hard skills and real things that they can do? in their lives to actually earn a living and make a living and develop a career. Because I, I can tell you personally, I've run businesses and I've had people come to me and they got a degree in this and a degree in that. I've had double majors sit in front of me that were freaking moronic idiots that I would not hire. 
I just would not hire them. They had no skills. They had no experience. I've had people sit in front of me asking me for a job with a master's degree. Like, I'm supposed to care that you have a master's degree. I don't care as an employer if you have a master's degree. I don't care at all, and most employers do not give a damn either. They may use it as a filtering mechanism because they're so prevalent anymore, degrees at various levels. So if I can get somebody with a college degree, I might as well. That's how, I'm telling you, I talk employer to employer with people. I know how it actually works, okay? That's the mindset of the people who actually own these companies. Well, there's so many of them, I might as well require that because I know the person can at least show up for four years and get a degree. That's what employers really think, folks. That's what they really think, especially when they want somebody with a BA degree to basically be a customer service rep. We're devaluing the education. So the problem, first of all, is why are we spending so much money for kids to go to grade school when we can send a kid to freaking community college for under $4,000? Part of it has to do with class sizes. So where does that lead us? I mean, Jack, do you want teachers teaching 100 students in one class like they do in college? Yes, I do. But I'd prefer those teachers maybe teach a 1,000 students at a time. Those kids learn in their own homes. And we start using this wonderful thing called technology. Somehow, right now, 110 plus thousand people are hearing what I have to say through an audio device, most of them using either smartphones or iPads or uh, something like that, or the speakers of their computer. Another few thousand people are sitting here watching this on YouTube. Why can't your education be packaged this way? Why are we spending $1,300 a year on textbooks other than to enrich the pockets of professors who have nothing better to do with their time than write textbooks? Why don't we make textbooks electronic so they cost our students less money? Why don't we revolutionize education as a whole and teach people critical thinking? Why don't we treat, teach them things like the trivium, grammar, grammar, rhetoric, and logic? Why don't we teach people that rhetoric is a good thing if you actually understand what the word means instead of listening to every other talking head on TV accuse every other talking head of the word rhetoric when most of them don't even know what the hell the word rhetoric means? Why? Because then you'd have a society of creative, individualized thinkers who are in charge of their own destiny. That's why, and we can't have that. What else is going on here? The student loan bubble is about to go and vomit, vomit financial doom on America. That's what's about to happen. People have caught on to this. You can only lie to people for so long. There's way too many people out there walking around with $20,000, dollars $50,000 in debt because they were told, be good, go to school, get good grades, work hard, and it'll pay off. And now they're working as either pizza delivery people or bartenders, and they're pissed. And they're starting to have kids, and they're starting to tell their kids, hey, this is all bullshit. Don't buy into it. Don't go to college unless you're going to be an engineer or a doctor or a high-level programmer or something like that. Learn the skills. Get a job. And if you figure out something you really love and you're passionate about, and it requires that higher education, then go there. So what do you have? You have... Two things coming together right now that are going to get more and more prevalent over the next five to ten years. Students realizing it's bullshit and not paying their damn student loans back. And you can garnish their wages and all, whatever, but you can only get so much blood from a stone. In fact, you can get zero blood from a stone unless you put blood on it first. So you already have. The people in power know major defaults in the trillions of dollars are coming down the pike in the student loan bubble. And then you have less people going into the Ponzi scheme to prop it up. Now, how could you possibly think that making junior college universal like this 
would prop up student loan. Would it require less student loans? No, require a lot more. See, our friend over at the Washington Post, while she just wants more money for people, actually has figured it out, but she's too dumb to know she's figured it out. How you ask? Yeah, see, you're going to need living expenses and you got to feed yourself and you'll qualify for student loans. And those things are, you can actually borrow money with student loans to pay for those things. So this will not actually reduce student loan debt. Even in the first two years of college, it will increase it because students who would have never gone to college will take the $3,000 in tuition assistance and borrow five to $10,000 for living expenses and educationally related living expenses, okay, who would have never taken those debts out in the first place. They're going to end up with a degree that isn't worth jack diddly squat, Because no one's going to care. Oh, that's Because right now, employers are already like, oh, you went to community college for two years and you didn't complete your degree? That's nice. Back of the line. So what happens when everybody's gone? At least right now, it's like, well, I got three people and this person at least got through community college and they've got some relevant life experience and job experience that relates. And as a tiebreaker, I mean, I do have a more educated person and you know, maybe or maybe that doesn't show through, but if it does, it might be a, a tiebreaker. When everybody has a degree, it doesn't matter. Or to quote a cartoon movie, when everybody's super, nobody's super. The reality is the education system in this country is in desperate need of a radical overhaul. And things like this are not designed to make America more competitive. They're not designed to create greater opportunity. They're designed to try to put life support into a system that's dying on its own. And those of you that say, well, in Europe, everybody goes to school for free. No, they don't. In Europe, you are divided into multiple classes based on your academic ability. And those that are capable of performing at the university level get to go to the university. And if you're not capable, you don't get to go. You don't even get to buy your way in. And that's why you have a lot of these people coming to America, paying their own way to go to college, because they can actually get to university, because in their country, they can't go. They can't even pony up the money and go if they don't meet the academic requirements to get in, which is probably one of the few things that Europe does better than us. And when you hear all this crap about test scores, let me tell you something. When you look at the test scores for math and science that are so critical and important to our status in the world, and you see the scores that are coming out of Europe and Asia versus ours, our scores include everybody, including the moron that doesn't want to be in school, and their scores include the people that are bound for that university system. That's why their scores are so much better than us. A little bit more truth for you guys out there. But can we afford this? No. Can we afford to continue this educational system we have? No. Is it fair to our children that we continue in the way that we are? Should we be continuing to use a Prussian-based education model that's over 150 years old when we live in a world where people have more intelligence-gathering capability on an iPhone than a NASA-level supercomputer had in 1970? Absolutely not. We need to move forward with the times. The days of children going to school and being picked on and abused and, and, and all these other things that happen in schools, they need to go to the past. Parents need to take charge of the education of their children. We need to stop relying on the state for this. And hey, if you're on YouTube, if you want to hear more like this, I got another segment coming up in today's podcast. Again, that's 1497. That's going to tie right into this. But that's it for this segment. 
And uh, thanks to all of you who have asked about it and pointed it out. I'd like your thoughts on this. I've heard a lot of people say things like, well, it's good for my kids, so should I have to pay for your kids to go to college when your kids aren't motivated enough to figure out how to raise three to $4,000 of their own to get themselves into college? I don't think I should. I really don't think I should. Obama says anybody that wants to go to community college and is able to work for it should be able to go. Well, trust me, at the cost that it actually costs to go, if you are able to work, if you are willing to work for it, you are able to go. Let's take another one. So this next one came from John, and I, I'm covering it mainly because I think that if you believe that we need government in our lives at all, um, and you are of a tendency to to make apologies for a lot of things that government does, and uh, you're not for really stripping government down to the bare bones. What you need is you need to be informed as to what government is actually doing and how much is regulated that doesn't need to be regulated. And this is a perfect example of a law that was smacked down by a federal judge that should have never existed in the first place. Uh, and the judge called it unconstitutional. And the people of Texas should have known better. But here's the thing. This is not a Texas thing. Texas is just where this was fought. This type of law and regulation exists in every state in our country. Every state in our country has laws like this. And this is going to actually cause a lot of states to have to rethink the way they're doing things. And a lot of citizens to stand up and declare, I have a right to braid hair. Yeah, you heard that right, braid hair. Here you go. Federal judge to Texas. No, you can't force people to do useless things. The state of Texas told Isis Brantley that she needed to spend thousands of hours taking useless classes and thousands of dollars on useless equipment before she would be permitted to teach hair braiding at her own school. On Wednesday, Judge Sam Sparks told Texas that that was unconstitutional in a monumentous decision that shows what judicial engagement can do for entrepreneurs everywhere. Isis is an expert African hair braider with decades of experience teaching everyone from out-of-work women seeking a new skill to a state-licensed cosmetologist interested in learning the art of African hair braiding. On June 25, 2013, the Texas Department of Licensing and Regulations notified Isis that in order to teach hair braiding at her own school, she must first become a state-licensed barber instructor, a process that takes months and costs thousands of dollars. The requirements also include completing a 1,500-hour curriculum that is wholly irrelevant to African hair braiding. Would-be barber schools also must comply with a number of facility and equipment regulate requirements that would cost over $20,000. The Institute for Justice joined with ICE to file suit in the Western District of Texas, contending that the Texas scheme violated the 14th Amendment, which guarantees every American the right to earn an honest living free of arbitrary interference. The government apparently hoped that the Judge Sparks would do what what judges all too often do when they imply the so-called rational basis test. The default rule in the constitutional cases that do not involve the rights the Supreme Court is labeled fundamental, like speech, religion, voting, and privacy, judges in rational-based cases routinely abandon their constitutional duty to seek truth and instead work to rationalize the government's actions. In seeking to defend the challenge provisions, the government admitted the provisions, quote, may not be sensible or particularly well-crafted, but argued that those who drafted them, quote, could have believed that they further, further legitimate interest in public health and safety, 
even if they actually did not. The government invoked Williamson v. Lee Optical 1955, a case in which the Supreme Court upheld a law barring people who were not licensed optometrists or ophthalmologists from replacing broken lenses and pre preventing out-of-state eyeglass retailers from advertising in the name of public health and safety, of course. So I'm going to stop there. You can read the rest of the article if you want to. Interesting, this comes from the Huffington Post. And if you want to get a good laugh, Read the comments where Democrats and Republicans argue about who's responsible for this. From the most red to the most blue of states, this type of regulation about cutting freaking hair exists everywhere. And what the state says is, well, there's chemicals that people put on hair and dyes and things like that could be dangerous. And, you know, using sharp tools around somebody's face, you could cut them if you don't know what you're doing. So we have to have this state provision that tells people how to cut hair and style hair. And you have to get a license. And if you go get your hair cut at freaking Pro Cuts, For nine bucks, you'll see a little license for every hair cutter sitting on the wall right by their chair. And they have to have that license or they're not allowed to cut your hair. And apparently, if you bring me your glasses and I have a lens that fits and I put, put a lens back in your glass and you're happy with it, I violated the law as well. And the Supreme Court's upheld that. So if we need the government to tell us who can and cannot, in this case, not even cut but braid hair, if this lady needs to put in a barber college, spend 1,500 hours of her time studying things that do not apply to what she's already an expert in, and spend $20,000 to put in facilities to have a true barber college to teach other people to braid hair, and we need the government for that. We are screwed, folks. So you, this is what I want you to get out of this. If this is true, and it is, I mean, this reads like something from the freaking onion. I mean, when you first hear about this, you're almost like, this can't be. It can't be that a lady braiding hair and teaching people how to braid hair was asked by the state to commit to 1,500 hours of education and spend $20,000 and was threatened with fines and imprisonment for not complying. Because again, what do I always say? The state can't do anything without the threat of violence at the point of a gun. Without the threat of violence at the point of a gun, what could the state have done to this lady? You have to do this. That's nice. Go piss off. But no, you can't just say that even though it's ridiculous because they will bring men with guns to your facility, shut you down, put you in jail, enforce fines on you and, and extract those fines any way they can from you, including incarcerating you and paying you per day of incarceration. They'll let you go. You won't go do it again. You won't go back to jail. That is the state. That is the way the state works. The state is organized and perceived legitimate mafia. That's what the state is. And if this doesn't convince you that smaller government, when it comes out of the mouth of any politician, is nothing bullshit, and that what we don't need is to remove a few laws and regulations, but we need to literally strip the government by 70 to 80% of its current power just to be able to breathe free air again, then you're not paying attention. There is no world in which it is required that the state legislate the braiding of hair. Or the repairing of glasses. The repairing of glasses. I cannot advertise my glasses in your state interstate. There's part of your federal health problems as well. America, if you don't wake up, you will indeed look out one day and realize that you are prisoners in the land in which your forefathers sacrificed their lives their fortunes, and their sacred honor to give to you. And we're already there. The reality is you just don't see it yet. 
So can I get upset over something stupid like this? You bet. Because there must be millions of examples like this out there for us to uncover and discover. I always figured the cosmetology, haircutting, bullshit licensing that states did was ridiculous. I just didn't know how bad it was. And I've actually heard of these things where they braid feathers into your hair. Like little girls have learned how to do this and it's some kind of fashion thing. I don't know if it's faded out as a fad or whatever. But states that went after kids doing that for braiding a freaking feather into somebody's hair. Because you don't have a license to braid hair. You live in a nation where there are people in your government that think it's okay to require a license to braid hair. Please let that sink in today. And please start to realize just how far from liberty this country that's advertised is the greatest country on God's green earth and the freest country on God's green earth really is. We are slaves to a state and oligarch apparatus. That's what we are. And, you know, it's like anything else. If you're an alcoholic and you want to quit drinking, the first thing you have to say is, I'm an alcoholic. If you are a slave and you ever want to be a free man or a free woman, you better admit you're a slave first. In America, you are slaves. When you live in a society where this type of thing is regulated, there is no freedom. There is no liberty. There is only the illusion thereof. Let's go on to something else before I have a migraine or something today. Here's something totally different and interesting so that we can shift gears a little bit today. We've talked about some of this stuff enough, for at least for now. Um, this comes from Justin. Justin says, Hi, Jack. Is it possible to 100% match a gun to a shell casing? The background is my wife and I were watching a 48 Hours mystery, and the entire case rested on a shell casing of a 12-gauge shotgun. They supposedly looked at the shell casing and determined that for sure it was the spouse's, that he fired it. It was used to kill the victim, and that it was fired from this specific gun that was in his possession and no others. I know of ballistics testing for striations that come from the barrel, but I've never heard of any type of science that could determine all that from a hammer hitting a primer of one shell casing. Um, by the way, in case you're interested, the husband's story was that he picked up all his brass at the range the day prior, and one shell must have fallen out of his pants when he came home, so it had to be enough evidence to overwhelm a seemingly reasonable story. I don't know anything about the story. I don't know whether the guy's telling the truth. I don't know whether he's a murderer. I, I don't know, and, and it, it's really not my job to figure that out. My job here for you guys is a forensics job today. Can science, and forensical science in particular, take a shotgun casing and say this shell was fired from that gun? The answer, yes. Because it's not just the hammer hitting the primer. When you fire around in a gun, any gun, there's a tremendous amount of pressure. And while the pressure of a shotgun is significantly lower than that of center file rifle cartridges, it's still a significant amount of pressure. And when you fire a, a gun and that pressure builds up and it expands the, the round in the chamber and it forces the, the, the cartridge face back on the breech, back on the bolt face, I'm sorry, the bolt face, it actually leaves an imprint. It leaves an imprint. And there's some things that could cloud this, like, is it reloaded? If it was reloaded and had been fired in multiple weapons, that would cloud things. But if it was a factory round, which is probably likely in this case anyway, fired one time in one gun, just like there's unique tooling marks 
to every barrel with the lands and grooves of the rifling. Because think about it. Marlin doesn't take a new machine every time they, they, they rifle a barrel or Remington or Winchester or Howe or anybody. They all use the same tool to make the same barrel over and over and over again in mass production methodology. But as that tool cuts that barrel, there's little things that happen that are different every single time, as unique as a fingerprint. Well, when you machine the face of a bolt on a gun, especially if that gun's been used and some of the things may have changed in wear patterns, etc., when the when the, uh, the, the, the the rim of that cartridge is forced back against that bolt face, it leaves marks. Now, they're not as obvious to the naked eye, but they're there, and they can be put down under a microscope, and I can fire another cartridge in the same gun, and I can look for those marks to be identified as being identical. And yes, and how accurate is it? Probably pretty accurate. I'm, I'm not a forensic specialist, uh, but from what I know of the machining process and tooling process, it, you would definitely have a defense attorney making the case that this is not as accurate as a fingerprint, and you'd have a war of experts in a, a properly defended case to try to at least put the, the concept of reasonable doubt into the mind of a jury on that one piece of evidence. But um, in this case, you don't even have the guy that, that, that fired the shot claiming, I didn't shoot that thing. So in that case, from the information I've gotten, there's no contesting whether or not that cartridge was fired in that shotgun. It's just when that cartridge was fired, is that what actually killed the person? Because we can't trace buckshot or birdshot or even a slug back to the gun. Now, what's interesting is if this guy had killed this lady with a slug, it might be, I don't know, but it might be the case that the slug could be traced back to the cartridge it was fired from. Or at least from being of a production run or something like that that would have been used by this manufacturer for this round. You know, and things like a wadding left around might also be able to be matched up and say this particular round uses this particular wadding. And while we can't say that this wadding uh, goes with this cartridge in particular, it is consistent and leads to start building a case that it's at least probable that this cartridge was fired in this gun. We can see that from the forensics of the tool marking. And then these uh, terminal objects, these terminal ballistic objects, are at least consistent with matching with that cartridge. That would be a full case to be made to a jury. Uh, so I, I think it definitely can be done. How effective it is going to be is going to depend on the experts, the quality of the, the thing, and then the totality of the case. But if, if you don't think that you can match brass or shot shell to the gun that it's fired from, you're wrong. You can. Um, and that's something that has been done many times in many individual cases. Has it ever been done improperly or without sufficient uh, oversight or sufficient expertise being applied to it? Could they be very, very similar and you need a truly discerning expert to determine this and this are two different uh, guns that were fired in because they were made in the same day in the same factory and is it possible that they that could happen where two guys both bought the same gun and one used it for murder and the other guy gets accused I guess but you start to get into preponderance of the evidence type of thing there and it's up to a, a, a skilled defense attorney to create that reasonable doubt because in a murder trial anyway reasonable doubt is sufficient to not convict anyway so that's that's my take on that one so we'll chalk up another one as we go into the next segment into a Jack was right segment where Jack's right and doesn't want to be right. And sometimes it's shocking how quick Jack is right about these things. So last week I answered a question that um, 
was uh, about low oil prices and how, in fact, this was Friday that I answered this question. People are concerned that gas prices going too low could crash the economy, and I had a lot to say on that. But I said, one thing you're going to see is while this, this price in gas goes down, government at every level, county, state, federal, local, you name it, will use and seize upon this opportunity to raise gas taxes while people are not really paying attention to the cost of gas. And the lower it goes, the, the greater the cost increase they can create with a tax. And if they can time it just right so the tax takes over as the, the price is falling even further, people don't really worry about the tax on gas. They just worry about how much they pay to fill up their vehicle. So this was just too tempting for your ass clowns in Washington to resist. So this was sent to me by someone that didn't give me his first or last name. I'll just call him Yahoo because that's what his email address says. So Yahoo sent the following. Jack, you called this. Check out this article from USA Today. Senators call for federal gas tax hike. Duh. USA Today, Washington, low gas prices have rekindled talk on Capitol Hill about raising the federal gas tax to eliminate huge annual deficits in the Federal Highway Trust Fund that pays for road and bridge work around the country. While some top Republicans remain animate, a gas hike is not the answer, there are signs that the idea, including one from Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee, is at least getting a fresh look. Corker and Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut, have proposed raising the federal gas tax by 12 cents over two years and indexing it to inflation. To make the concept more palatable to fiscal conservatives, the measure would lower other taxes. Let's stop there and let's give you the Jack Spearco no bullshit version of that little bitty paragraph composed of two sentences. Two senators have proposed raising the federal gas tax by 12 cents. Stop there. Okay. It's a shitload of money taken out of the pockets of the American people by two senators that know they can be the lead on this and not get thrown out of office. That's what it is. People with no risk in, in proposing this are the ones that are selected by all the other senatorial ass clowns to propose it. Don't think there's not huge support for this, even though you'll hear people speak against it. They all want to do this because they all want more of your money. Okay? That's the first part. And... Over two years, that means that we're going to make this easy for you to accept. We also are going to set this up so that it happens over two years, so that at any time that somebody bitches about it, one side can blame the other side, even though they both did it. Uh, this would be very similar to what was called the dull dime back in the 80s, all right? Let's keep going here. And indexing it to inflation. This means passing a never-ending tax increase. So let me read it to you. Let me read it to you in the Jack Spearco way, this first sentence. Two senators, uh, including Corker and Murphy, who have nothing to lose by proposing this and have been selected by their federal ass clowns to be the lead dogs in this, have proposed raising the federal gas tax by 12 cents over two years so that both sides can blame each other whenever it's inconvenient and it rises up again in the future. And they have made sure that they'll never have to deal with this again because the tax will go up on its own in perpetuity by indexing it to inflation. Therefore, what they are passing is a tax that will continue to raise itself from here to infinity. Okay? Second, see, that's the real statement. The second sentence in here. To make the concept more palatable to fiscal conservatives, the measure would lower other taxes. 
the Jack Spirico version of that sentence, to give cover fire to fiscal conservatives necessary to get the vote, people who actually risk losing their jobs by voting for this, they've created the illusion of lowering other taxes, even though it will never occur. That's that paragraph in Jack Spirico English. Let me read a little bit more for you. The 18.4 cent per gallon gas tax hasn't been increased since 1993. As vehicles have become more efficient, the revenue generated by the gas tax has dropped. Current stopgap funding for the Highway Trust Fund expires in May, and transportation officials in Tennessee and other states are holding back projects until uncertainty about the federal money is addressed. What does this mean? The federal government steals money from the states and gives it back to them to maintain their highways with, so the states aren't going to do their damn job until the federal government tells them how much money they're going to get. By the way, we're making up a bullshit excuse here that gas usage is down when it's down 11%, and we could cover that gap with about a 3 to 4 cent tax raise in gas prices if that's all we really wanted to do. But what we want to do is create a great big slush fund so contractors can continue to retire on a single contract for improving highways in a state where it never gets done, and you're going to continue to see people work on roads, quote-unquote, work on roads for a decade or longer longer and jacking around and diddly jacking around with crap that inconveniences you and never see the project completed while more and more money is extracted from you. That's what it really says. That's that's the Jack Spirico version. Senator John Thune, uh, Republican South Dakota chairman of the Senate Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee. Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee, really? These guys just make shit up and then appoint themselves the head of it said this week a gas tax increase could not be ruled out. Senator John Thune, Republican, South Dakota. Okay, Republican Senator Jim Inhofe of uh, Oklahoma, chairman for the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, agreed. Two top Republicans agree. They did not endorse Corker's bill, but their comments represent more of an opening that when gas prices top four gallon, $4 a gallon... What we floated is obvious. There's not enough money coming in, Corker said last week. The Highway Trust Fund will be more than $160 billion over the next, uh, be short more than $160 billion for the next 10 years. Maintaining and expanding the nation's transportation infrastructure is one of the few big issues with strong bipartisan support in Congress. But in a long-term solution to the Highway Trust Fund deficit has been elusive. With Congress passing short-term fixes, the process has been tumultuous for state officials who can't plan multi-year transportation projects without knowing how they'll be paid. Corker told reporters this week that even if raising gas taxes isn't a solution, he wants whatever Congress decides by May to be a permanent fix. Okay, a politician has set a deadline that doesn't mean anything to sound like he means business. That's the translation of that line for you. We are open to all kinds of ways in dealing with this, Corker said. We don't care how we get your money. We just want it. That's the translation. Quote, but one thing I will lay in the railroad tracks is over any kind of short-term kick-the-can-down-the-road approach. Translation, I'll try to block anything that only fixes the problem now. I want this to be permanent. That's why you propose a permanent tax increase, guys. Okay? Corker was especially critical of the short-term fixes done mostly with borrowed money. Quote, it's been an act of generational theft, he said. Quote, Congress has taken what I perceive as a cowardly way out. We're spending future generations' money and not dealing with the issue. End quote. I would totally agree with that if it wasn't about this one issue. 
Hello, Senator. You're doing that with every damn thing in America because you're doing things the government doesn't need to be doing. You guys have more than enough money to do everything the government needs to be doing. But maybe if you weren't worried about people selling lemonade, braiding hair, or growing pigs, you'd have enough money to fix the damn roads. I'm just saying. Anyway, if you want to read the little bit that's left of this article, you can. My point is simple to you guys. It's really, really simple. The price of fuel has gone down, so the opportunity to tax you at a time that you won't flip out has arised, and they're not going to let it pass. However, this is a short-term stopgap measure because, as I've continued to say, taxing you by the mile is the other foot that's eventually coming down. And it's not just going to be about money. It's going to be about tracking everywhere you go, how you get there, how long it takes you to go, how long you stay there, Every movement that you make, the technology that they keep saying, if we could just figure out how to do this, they already know how to do this. It's not hard. They could do it tomorrow if they want to. They're just looking for ways to sell you on it. So watch as they take this opportunity to increase taxation, steal the money, still not fix the problem, and come back and tell you, hey, there's just too many hybrids out there. They need to pay their share, too. And, again, I'll be back with another Jack is right on this thing probably sometime soon but I won't be happy about it. Okay, as we, we move on here, the next one I have uh, for you today comes to me from Eric, and it's world's largest indoor farm is 100 times more productive. It's a little open-ended when you just say it's more productive uh, than traditional methods because there's a lot of different things you would call traditional methods, but this is a very productive method. Let me read this to you. This is on Web Urbanist. The t statistics for this incredibly successful indoor farming endeavor in Japan are a staggering 25,000 square feet producing 10,000 heads of lettuce per day, 100 times more per square foot than traditional methods, with 40% less power, 80% less food waste, and 99% less water usage than outdoor fields. But the freshest news from the farm, a new facility using the same technologies, has been announced and is now under construction in Hong Kong, with Mongolia, Russia, and mainland China on the agenda for subsequent near-future builds. The currently completed setup customized LED lighting developed with GE helps plants grow up to two and a half times faster, one of the many innovations co-developed in this enterprise by Shingra Simana, sorry for the pronunciation guys, a man who helped turn a former semiconductor factory into a plant's biggest interior factory farm. The specific idea to deploy it at this time in this place grew out of a disaster. The 2011 earthquake and tsunami that shook the island nation, causing area food shortages in general, and this building to be abandoned in particular. Turning it into an indoor farm both gave the structure new purpose and has helped replace the needed fresh, healthy, locally grown greens. Shimara has shortened the cycle of days and nights in this artificial environment, growing food faster while optimizing temperature, lighting, and humidity and maximizing vertical square footage in this vast interior space, about half the size of a football field. No water is lost to soil, and a, cor and a cordless lettuce variant reduces waste. Currently, the process is only about half automated. Machines do some work, but the picking part is done manually. In the future, though, I expect an emergence of harvesting robots. For example, a robot that can transplant seedlings for cutting and harvesting or transporting harvest produce to be packaged. With a long-standing package for produce production, he's, quote, got the idea for his indoor farm as a teenager when he visited a vegetable factory at the Expo 85 World Fair in Tusk. 
Tsukupa, Japan. He went on to study plant physiology in the Tokyo University of Agriculture, and in 2004 started an indoor farming company called Maria, which is a Japanese meaning future. Shimura continues to think about future refinements, applications, and expansions. Quote, I believe that at least technically we can produce almost any kind of plant in a factory, but what makes most economic sense is to produce fast-growing vegetables that can be sent to the market quickly. That means leaf vegetables for us for now. In the future, though, we would like to expand to a wider variety of produce. It's not just vegetables we're thinking about, though. The factory can also produce medicinal plants. I believe there's a good possibility that we will be involved in a variety of products soon. You can read a little bit more of the article if you want to. I have some thoughts on this. Number one, I am not negative on this as a whole. I would like to actually see the numbers behind the scenes as to how you use 40% less power than what traditional methods are. And what do you mean by traditional methods? Because cooling and or heating a 25,000 square foot facility is not cheap. It's not cheap. If you just look at your own electric bill, you'll see what I mean. So all of that light uses a lot of energy that you're not getting from the sun. And all of it, even though it's LED, you put that much of it in. If you look at this, it's stacked floor to ceiling with this stuff, uh, is going to generate a significant amount of heat. So uh, this might actually work better in a cool climate because it would be less than to cool the facility, I guess, and the heat from the lights would actually be an asset. So where these are located may or may not be really important to making those numbers work out. Japan has some places that are really hot, tropical, and some places that are pretty damn cold, depending on where you're at in the, uh, on the, in the islands uh, that make up Japan. So I'm not exactly sure where this is. My concerns, what is the nutritional quality of this food? Um, I'll get to the good parts of that here in a second, but what you're looking at is a hydroponic method of growing food. So you're only going to get the minerals and nutrients into the food that you put into the food. So the next question, where does that come from? Whatever you are giving the plants so that they can thrive and survive and end up with that mineral and nutrient into our body. Instead of natural processes of soil fertility, you're having to gain whatever you're giving them, your NPK and other nutrients, from something else. Fish waste, who knows? Um, but how sustainable is that place you're getting that from? Okay. Um, so that's the concern. Like, what's the nutritive quality of the food? Now, Uh, when we look at something like lettuces and stuff like that, they're not their biggest nutritional powerhouses anyway, but as you move into doing other things that you would expect to get a pretty good nutritive uh, bang for your buck from, uh, that starts to ask us. Now, the upside. Number one, it frees up a lot more land to be grazed by animals. Not necessarily in Japan. It's tough to do that there. But overall, if we can produce a lot of our vegetables in this type of facility, then we can use land in a much more permaculture-like way with grazing systems to produce meat. Because I don't need to grow a lettuce there. I can grow clover there that, a, that, a, that a, a cow eats and it grows back. I can grow grass there that a cow eats and it grows back. I can grow uh, different uh, vegetation there that, that chickens and turkeys and ducks eat and it grows back. And it keeps, so I'm using the solar cycle then and the soil cycle to continually develop more nutrition. So it frees up more space to do that, which is a much easier thing to do and a much more viable way to manage land because it is the way that nature manages land with grazing and rotational grazing. Uh, while this food may suffer some nutritional deficiency from not being grown in nutrient-dense soil, it should have a lot less toxins in it. 
I don't need to spray for insects anywhere near uh, the level that I would uh, outdoors. I've got a, a closed facility, and surely I could develop that facility to where it's almost impossible to get insect pests in there. Not that it can't happen, but we could put in protocols like negative pressure systems and all that makes it very difficult for any insect pest to get in there. If you had an insect pest issue, you could basically take the decommission the facility for a period of time and starve out the pests and start things right back up like a factory. We could actually sequester 25,000 square feet. We don't have to have it all open. We can sequester it into individual rooms so that we can take uh, production and decommission it in an individual area long enough to starve out and deal with a pest problem should it arise. There should be almost no disease issues, no weeds to contend with, so the productivity should be higher. And maybe the claims on the energy, that it uses 40% less energy even though you're providing your own lighting and temperature, are true because of all the energy inputs that are eliminated as being necessary in conventional systems and agriculture. So it might be an improvement. I don't think it's a silver bullet, but it is encouraging, and I wonder where we go next with this. And I wonder how viable is it when we get out of high-dollar crops like lettuces. Lettuce is expensive, guys. I know we think of it as cheap, but it's not. You start uh, pricing salad greens and stuff like that, you see what it goes for a pound. It's, it's kind of shocking. But this is interesting, something to keep an eye on. I'll have a link in today's show notes to the article. Next up, this comes from Rex. By the way, I have a grandfather and an uncle named Rex, uh, so that's kind of cool. Anyway, um, Rex says, in a comment on the blog where I talked about the Keystone Pipeline last week and teaches me something I didn't know, and I love when you guys teach me something I didn't know, it's amazing how politicians and media have confused the facts regarding the Keystone Pipeline. The Keystone Pipeline has been delivering Canadian oil all the way to Texas and refineries in Port Arthur for a year now. There's a link to TransCanada.com. It's the XL expansion that has not been approved. Note, it's Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway that benefits from the XL expansion delay. And there's another link. So the first link goes to an article, Nederland, Texas, Market Wired, January 22nd, 2014, almost a year ago. TransCanada Corporation, TXXTPP, and YSETRP, Uh, TransCanada announced today that approximately at 10.45 a.m. Central Standard Time on January 22, 2014, the Gulf Coast Project began delivering crude oil on behalf of customers to Texas refineries. The completion of the $2.3 billion crude oil pipeline provides a safe and direct connection between the important oil hub in Cushing, Oklahoma, and delivery points to the U.S. Gulf Coast. Quote, this is a very important milestone for TransCanada. Our shippers and Gulf Coast refiners who have been waiting for a pipeline to supply oil directly from Cushing. End quote, said Rosh Gerling, President and Chief Executive Officer. Quote, this project is a critical modern piece of an American energy infrastructure that allows producers to safely connect growing production with the world's most efficient refiners on the U.S. Gulf Coast. It also provides those American refineries the opportunity to use more of the crude oil produced in both Canada and the United States for decades to come, end quote. So you can read the rest of the article if you want to. It's very, very long, and I don't really want to read the whole thing. But basically, there's a pipeline that takes all that, that horrible, nasty, tar sands crude oil from Canada all the way to Houston right now. It exists. It's there. They're pumping oil. They've been pumping it for a year. Huh. So what's the XL expansion? Pump more. That's it. Pump more. So it's actually expanding it. Exactly what it sounds like. So the whole thing about we don't want to use that oil because it's dirty oil and it's so evil and blah, 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 is all 
Bullshit. It's a, so this is a perfect example of a politician like Obama writing both sides of an issue. The, the oil's coming through. The oil companies are making billions of dollars. They could be making billions more, but hey, I'm still taking care of them, so, so they'll still fund stuff for us. And I can turn to the environmental whack jobs and tell them, see, I won't let that happen, even though I did it right in front of their face and they don't see it. Now, what about uh, Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett? There's a little lesson in being an ass clown and getting away with it here from Buffett, how you can say something and not really matter and try to look good at the same time and, and, and emulate politicians by not being one and never being called on it. Buffett says, I'd vote yes on the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, the Keystone Oil Pipeline is a good idea for the United States, Warren Buffett said Monday, even though it would take away some business from his Mercer Hathaway rail subsidy, BNSF. The long-delayed leg from Alberta, Canada to Nebraska should be approved, the billionaire investor told CNBC. I would vote yes, Buffett said in the Squawk Box interview, but he added he has no idea if Barack Obama will approve it. Now, remember when Barack Obama was running for president? Buffett was a genius. My good friend Warren Buffett says, my good friend Warren Buffett says, I was talking to my good friend Warren Buffett yesterday, but you know, when you've already been elected twice, I guess you don't need to worry about stuff like that anymore because you're done. Uh, quote, I don't believe in the Keystone Pipeline, this is Buffett, because of the jobs you'd make by building it. You can build about anything and create jobs, he said. I, quote, I just believe it's a useful pipeline, end quote. Well, there's some truth from Buffett, at least. You can you know, create jobs by building anything, like a turtle tunnel in Florida for $9 million. It's part of the, 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 the Recovery Act, right? Okay, And then those jobs go away. But it, it's okay to do it to make a turtle tunnel, but not an oil pipeline. That's what Barack Obama's position is right now. But remember, they already built a pipeline. They just want to make more pipeline. That's what's been delayed. Um, BNSF, which again is Buffett's uh, uh, rail subsidiary, has benefited from transporting shell oil. Referring to the proposed pipeline, which was imposed by environmentalists, Buffett said, it's not that big of a competitor. I think probably that the Keystone Pipeline is good for the country. But he acknowledged that rail cars carrying the oil will need to be made safer and promised they will be. Quote, the oil from the Balkan and from the Eagle Ford as well turned out to be more volatile than people anticipated. We've lowered the speeds. It's also going to require another kind of tank car too. Translation, I'm going to charge them more money to take it to Texas for them. Okay? BNSF will be buying 5,000 new tanker cars. We have found in the last year or so that it's more dangerous to move certain types of crude, certainly more than was thought previously. You know where it's safer? In a pipe in the ground, just saying. In late December, a North Dakota town had been had to be evacuated after a BNS train carrying Balkan crude derailed and caught fire. Now, you might think that Buffett's being disingenuous here, and I think he's really being just, he doesn't really care. He's, he's, he's walking both sides because he can, but he doesn't really care. Here's why. When you have the kind of money Berkshire does, if this XL thing goes through, you just invest in it. You don't care if you lose. What I keep telling you about the oligarchs, they don't care where they make their money. They just care that they make their money. And there's always enough opportunities to screw you and make tons of billions of dollars by scraping it out of the public till. So there's going to be plenty of public money at, 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 at Buffett's discretion through different ways, through his subsidiaries that he can get access to, to leverage his investable wealth into those things and make even more billions and trillions of dollars. So he doesn't care. But the thing is, isn't this a beautiful position to be in for Buffett? Well, I'd vote yes for it. 
Well, you're not in office, so you'll never get to prove whether you mean that or not. So he can make money on the rail cars. He can make money by investing in the place. He doesn't care. And this is actually, as much as I'm picking on Warren Buffett here, this is actually an oligarch showing you his true colors. I don't really care what you do. I'm going to make my money anyway. That, that's, that's the Jack Spierko version of this article. Yeah, this is benefiting me. I'm okay with that. I'll make the money while I can. But if they do this other thing, that's fine. In fact, I'd do it myself because I'm going to make plenty of money anyway and I don't really give a damn. And you got a president claiming to be environmentally sensitive that this oil coming from Canada is terrible, evil oil, while the pipeline that's actually bringing it from Canada was built right on his watch. And all we're talking about is another piece of pipe. Just saying, let's go ahead and uh, maybe we'll take one more and wrap up for today. Okay, so the last one today comes from Shake, and he says, I saw this posted on Facebook. It appears to be in line with what you've described as a better model for offering services like medicine or education. There's a story on WFAA.com. Uh, medical practice growing after refusing health insurance. In Dallas, by the way, skepticism often walks through doors to see this doctor. Quote, it's because we've taken out all the middle. We've taken out all the markup. It's wholesale medicine, end quote, said Dr. James Pickney, founder and CEO of Diamond Physicians. The 32-year-old is among a growing number of doctors who no longer accept health insurance. Instead, they charge clients like Greg Bardis monthly fees. He pays $200 for unlimited visits and procedures without any copay. I'm one of the first people to sign up on the exchange. I was looking forward to getting insurance, Bartis said. He did purchase a policy through healthcare.gov last year, but ended up at Pickney's office because he couldn't find a doctor on his plan that accepted new patients. Obamacare, yay. I gave up after a while, Bartis says. Concierge medicine, as it's known, isn't a new concept, but Pigney's practice is growing so quickly, he's opened an office in Frisco and plans to franchise Diamond Physicians next year. News 8 asked if he considers himself better at medicine or business. Quote, I think I'm a pretty good doctor, Pickney said. Quote, most doctors are not very good businessmen, end quote. That's a very true statement, guys. He makes money on membership fees rather than markups. Those fees range from $90 to $95 to $295 a month, depending on a patient's age. Pickney then pays other providers cash for common uh, tests. For example... MRIs cost about $4,000, but his patients pay $400. CT scans are $2,000 with insurance, but he said they are $300 through his practice. X-rays are usually $500, but priced at $60 at Pickney's Clinic, the result of which he can check on his smartphone. So, you know how you sit around for hours waiting for your X-rays to come back? This guy gets them for 60 bucks and he gets them instantly on his smartphone so he can examine them, tell you what's wrong with yourself, and send you on about your way. Hello, America, okay? Practicing medicine, Pickney said, is just as important as practicing physical responsibility. Most of all his patients have catastrophic insurance policies for emergencies. It's tough to pinpoint exactly how many doctors don't accept insurance. Neither the American Medical Association nor the Texas Medical Association keep statistics because they don't have any interest in it. That's why. But the TMA, which is the Texas Medical Association, said the concept is increasingly popular. And this is how medicine was practiced before the creation of Medicare and before employers began offering health insurance as benefits, the organization added. In other words, it works better. 
This works better because it's a free market solution. You know what you don't do in this model? You don't go to the doctor unless you need to. Because even though it's covered under your, your membership fee, all these other things cost money. They just cost a lot less. You don't get a free MRI. You just get an MRI for $400 versus $4,000. But what's the bigger story here? The whole thing is bullshit. Okay, the whole cost of healthcare in America is absolutely preposterous, 100% bullshit. MRIs do not cost $4,000. They cost $400. It's not just taking out the middleman, it's taking out all the layers of bullshit that the insurance companies skim off for themselves and paying the doctor what he would get anyway and paying the testing facility what they would get anyway. The money being spent isn't really $4,000 ever. No one pays that. Unless you don't have insurance and they bill you at that rate without insurance and put you in a financial oblivion to force you to have insurance to cover yourself so you don't get you know bankrupt in life. This whole thing could be corrected. This guy has it exactly the way that it should be. Okay? This is really how it should be. Health insurance should be for catastrophic events, and all other health insurance should just go away and not exist at all. You want to go to the doctor? You pay the doctor. You know why? He spent 10 years to become a doctor, and he knows what the hell he's doing. You have a problem. You want it fixed. When you have automotive insurance, it doesn't pay for your freaking oil changes or a front-end alignment or new tires. It pays for catastrophic damage to the vehicle. That's why it's freaking affordable. What do you think car insurance would, would, would cost? If you could go get an oil change with a $2 copay, right? If every time you filled up your gas tank, the insurance company was supposed to pay 50% of it. This, this is how we've made medical insurance. But this model works better. I have hope, and my hope is being dashed against the rocks at the same time. My hope is this type of innovation is so powerful. This ability for the market to show you the truth is so powerful that I believe intrinsically that people will gravitate towards it. The reason that hope is dashed on the rocks is most Americans are idiots. And if you don't like that statement, look around you and tell me I'm wrong. The average American is a freaking dumbed-down idiot today. That's why they get all the information. We talked at the beginning of the show today about how do you teach your children to be critical thinkers. Well, I'll give you one of the answers here. Stop opening your mouth like a stupid baby bird and letting the media puke down your throat and not just give you the answers, but give you the questions before you ask them. Our people don't ask questions anymore. They're told the question and the answer in the same breath. And they're said, here's your question, here's two answers, A and B, pick one. If you're an A, you're a Republican, B, you're a Democrat. And both of the answers are basically, here, we're going to screw you. Which way do you want to get screwed? That's what we have. So I don't know that the American people have enough intelligence left in them as a population for this market-based solution to work. And I know the plan. And I told you the plan. I told you the plan in 2010. Okay? I did. You can go back to episodes in 2010, especially toward the fall winter of that, where I gave you the answer that you're seeing come to fruition now. The Affordable Care Act was never meant to fix anything. 
It was designed from the very beginning to absolutely ruin what was left of a functioning health insurance industry in this country. To make health insurance unaffordable by the majority of people. And I don't want to hear, well, I'm on it and I get coverage for my whole family for $60 because I'm paying for it. That's why. Okay? That's why you get that. And there's not enough people getting it for that to outweigh all the people paying ridiculous amounts of money. And by the way, those of you that are, you know, my, my, my son's, uh, fiance right now gets health insurance for herself and her child for $30 a year. And she's concerned, or $30 a month. But she's concerned because last year it was 15, now it's 30. People say, well, that's, that's kind of like, like looking a gift horse in the mouth. Actually, you should be concerned because what happens when you double 30? And what happens when you double 60? And what happens, right? What happens when you keep doubling it every year? And that's what you can expect to see for even the low-cost versions of Obamacare, affordable care, whatever you want to call it. It's going to double annually for people that are paying very low rates for it. It's going to keep going up. And that doesn't mean that you guys that are paying really high dollar amounts like I am are going to pay less. No, your is going to keep going up astronomically as well. The whole point of the Affordable Care Act was to create such a disaster That the American people would finally say to the government, do whatever you need to do, just fix this. And that's what the American people are going to do. I don't know that these market-based solutions can work to head that off. But my hope, above hope, is that when they do create the amalgamated single-payer medical care system that is the goal, that as long as it's done in a way that doesn't put people like this young doctor out of business, they can coexist, and people can exist outside of that system, And the one place I think that this can be used is if you have health insurance that allows all your medical expenses to go against your deductible, whether they're filed to the company for insurance or not. I don't know how possible or probable that is. And look for that to be anywhere it does exist, to be a loophole that your government tries to close as it fixes the Affordable Care Act. Oh, by the way, uh, your new Republican majority just voted big time to fund everything they need to fund for Obamacare for the next year. I told you they would screw you. If you haven't yet figured out that no one in government is out for you, that it's all a dog and pony show, just keep paying attention to what they're doing versus what they're saying, and sooner or later, maybe you'll figure it out. And maybe you'll figure out the only solution you have is to work in your own life, build your own freedom, your own liberty, your own way. And to stop waiting for anybody in government to fix anything, because you know what? People don't do things that are detrimental to their own employment, and their own gravy train that they're on, and the money that they're making. And the people in government have sold you on them being necessary to solve problems. If the problems were actually solved, you might think, maybe we don't need as many of them anymore. So it's like asking the drug companies to cure a disease. Drug companies don't make money curing diseases. They make money treating them. Politicians don't stay viable by solving problems. They make their living by managing those problems. And that's what your government actually is really good at. Managing problems in a way that blames everybody but me for every problem that every politician ever talks about. Have you ever noticed that no politician ever says, hey, this is my fault, this is my party's fault, this is, it's always he did it, she did it, they did it, the president did it, the Congress did it, it's the Senate's fault, it's those guys in Austin, it's those guys in Little Rock, it's, it's always somebody else's fault. In the words of Helmer Simpson, This is everybody's fault but mine. You want to know why your nation acts that way? People in general are followers. 
and they follow the example of the leadership before them. And the concept of it's everybody's fault but mine is exactly the position from which our government is leading its people. So it's your choice. Choose which side of that dynamic you want to follow or make your own way. And just maybe the others will follow. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution is you.